I knew that there was a story here that was human. I knew that people needed to understand that people are mourning more than anything. You know, that more that more what was happening out there for all the time spent protesting, there was much more time spent holding vigil and people just being with each other, feeding each other, making sure that each other had water and treating each other's wounds and, and just being in community. I think that people were just so happy to be together. Space has been so privatized. We've been so socialized to be individuals and be on our own and our lives are our own little bubbles. I think that it was such a relief for people to just lock arms and say, I'm feeling this too. That's what I saw and that's why I wanted to go because I wanted to be with people who were really feeling it too. Welcome to She Does Podcast. I'm Elaine Sheldon. And I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And today we're back at it after a long break for a special episode to celebrate our guest, Sabah Foleyan, and her feature documentary film's premiere at Sundance 2017. Sabah is an activist and storyteller, born and raised in South Central LA. Who Streets, the documentary she's taking to Sundance, is her first film and follows activists who, after Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, became activated and motivated to fight for justice. And once his killer didn't stand trial, they continue this fight and it becomes a way of life for them. We interviewed Sabah at the 2015 Camden International Film Festival in Maine right before she pitched her film to a panel of influential film industry folks and a live audience. This event is called the Points North Pitch, and it gives filmmakers exposure and opportunities for their projects that are at that time works in progress. Back then, in 2015, Sabah was 40% through production, looking to raise more money and looking to build out her team. Well over a year later, she's met each of those goals, and then some. Who Streets has gained support and funding from the MacArthur Foundation, Chicken and Egg, Cinereach, Sundance Foundation, Firelight Media, Tribeca Film Institute, and BritDoc, among many other partners. Sabah and her collaborator, Damon Davis, were chosen as one of Filmmaker Magazine's annual 25 New Faces of Independent Film. As a first-time director, she's built out her team of experienced talent, including her producer, Jennifer MacArthur, who has worked on films including Almost Sunrise, Southern Rights, and Gideon's Army. Sarah and I have been following the exciting news about Sabah and Who Streets over the past year. And the Sundance premiere this week felt like a perfect time to drop this incredible conversation with her. So let's get right into it with the event that triggered Sabah into making Who Streets. They said he had his hands up and everything, man. Right? I don't know. I went out. I just heard the gunshot. I heard the gunshot from all the way up there. Yeah. I knew something happened. On August 9, 2014, Michael Brown was fatally shot in Ferguson, Missouri, a suburb just north of St. Louis. Yeah, and shot him some more when he was on the ground. Yeah, that's what they said. Shot him some more while he was on the ground. Brown was an 18-year-old black man. The shooter was Darren Wilson, a 28-year-old white Ferguson police officer. You need to exit the street immediately and stop throwing objects at law enforcement. Protests gained momentum, more participants, more attention. And in September of 2014, Sabah saw no choice but to go to Ferguson with cinematographer Lucas Alvarado Farrar to see with their own eyes and camera the truth behind the dramatic scenes playing out on the news. We shot, but it was chaotic. Every day was a protest. Every night was a protest. 
people were just completely in this mode of being totally determined to get justice. And on top of that, there was a sentiment that media was really there to exploit, to capture riot porn, not to really capture the human stories there. They are going to ramp up and then tomorrow's just gonna be an all out, you know, today was just like a burning of the town. I mean, look at the distance, man. Everything is on fire. Look at that shot, man. It was challenging at first to get real access, so we kind of just stayed down there shooting, talking to whoever would speak to us. And as time went on, we began to gain people's trust. People began to be like, oh, you guys are still here? Like, wow. So we started to get closer and closer. It really felt like a lot of journalists were there to be exploited. They wanted to see drama, they wanted to see people crying, or they wanted to see fire. A lot of the activists out there didn't really respect that and weren't open to it. So I had to kind of be there as a, as a, just as a human being, you know, be there as somebody who wanted to stand with this community as they grieved and who wanted to say, you know, yes, there should be some justice here. Something should be done. An 18-year-old boy is dead and there have to be some consequences for that. And so approaching people in that way um, as a human being, kind of making friendships and gaining understanding with people, that's really what allowed the trust to be built. And sometimes there were amazing conversations that are not on film. And the film, you know, my filmmaker brain is like, oh, I just want to record this. But, you know, that's, that's what it takes. So the real challenge about it is that this is the story of a community. It's not, there's not an MLK, there's not an Angela Davis. There are 10 MLKs and five Angela Davises. Or, so we can't make this about one person as easy as that might be. Or it, it wouldn't even be easy if it was about one person, but it would be much easier than what we're trying to do. But it has to be a tandem narrative. So in ways that's overwhelming, in other ways it's, it's being committed to that as a principle. The idea of, of representing this as a community means that we kind of just have to let the story unfold. I think the biggest challenge is talking to funders and, and persuading them that we know exactly what's going to happen and what we're doing as the story is totally still in progress and anything could happen tomorrow that changes everything. So that's been a challenge. But our strategy has just been to, to stick to the truth, to try to honor the way that people want to be represented, to try to see the beauty and the humanity in this struggle. And... Sometimes, you know, those questions kind of answer themselves if you just wait and watch. How did what the media portrayed on broadcast, online, differ from what you were seeing? I think they, they only showed a sliver of what that situation was. And again, I don't think that they did a good job of really investigating. I don't think that they were looking for the humanity in the situation. I don't think they were looking for how these people could be relatable or, or, you know, why the situation was happening, what are the underlying causes. Del Mar Boulevard, which is a main street in St. Louis, has the largest poverty on either side of the boulevard is the largest wealth gap in America. And it's, you know, visibly like you can see it. There are homes that are just dilapidated. The infrastructure is terrible on one side and on the other side, beautiful mansions. So this is a town that, a city that 
the stage was really set for something like this to happen. And that's true in a lot of places across this country. And I don't think that journalists did a good job at all of drawing that historical information out so that people can understand why this is happening. I think a lot of a lot of outlets were really content with saying, look at these rioters, they're out of control. Look at the fire. And if we dig deeper of why, like why are they content with that? What are they? I mean, it sells. It definitely sells. And also when it comes to the issue of anti-Black racism, you start to really threaten a lot of people's profits because when you really examine it and you look at mass incarceration, there's so much money being made. There's so many jobs in it, the labor that comes from it, the real estate that it takes up. There are so many people who profit from this situation that to really expose what racism is, it's not necessarily about who's calling who the N-word, you know, and these incidences of police brutality are, are examples of, of the really ugly side of it, but it's also a business. It's also a really profitable thing. So I think that there are people who are interested in having everyday people with really good intentions not fully understand what's going on so that they don't have to completely reform the, the prison system, the, the criminal justice system, which is what needs to happen. Sabah has been exploring her role as both an activist, particularly with the Black Lives Matter movement, and a filmmaker for quite some time. As an advocate at Rikers Island, she interviewed incarcerated people about their experiences with trauma. She also helped organize the Millions March, one of the largest marches for racial justice in New York history. She entered the world of storytelling through theater, attending the Lee Strasberg Institute of Theater and Film as a teenager, performing with the Black Theater Ensemble as a pre-med student at Columbia University. Oh, and she played on the Columbia basketball team. I'm the first person in my family to finish college. My mom went but didn't complete. And I don't think that she was aware of like sort of economics of it. And I certainly was not. So I didn't realize what it meant that I was moving to the most expensive city in the world. And I just, I came to Columbia, visited it, and fell in love, and I was like, this is where I'm going to school. This It was the only application that I actually submitted, and I submitted it early. My mom always told me that education was going to be, you know, the way out and the way to change my life, so I was determined to get the best possible education at whatever cost. And she also was always determined that, you know, to find the help that's out there. I grew up in L.A. in a neighborhood that was predominantly black, predominantly poor. Nearby was uh, another neighborhood that was mostly Mexican and also poor. Um, and interestingly, really similar to Harlem, where Columbia is, USC was really close by. So you had this really dramatic, sort of dramatically different communities that were right next to each other and really never interacted or intersected. At the same time, I went to school, from middle school to high school, in a neighborhood called Hancock Park, which is a nice, cute little suburb and very wealthy white neighborhood. And the school was a private all-girls school. So my upbringing was really 
walking in two worlds simultaneously. What my life at school was so different from my life at home. And it was incredible for me to see how wealthy people lived and the things that they were concerned about and the things that they weren't. I remember people talking about going to the dermatologist. <laughs> and it was so surprising to me because I like I think back to my aunt who had hurt her knee one time doing something. She's always carrying all this food to church. She's always feeding everyone. She hurt her knee. And we're like, you need to go to the doctor. And she's like, no, I can't take off work. So th that's the dramatic shift sort of in the way that people, people live, like totally different priorities. And being in those two worlds really helped me understand that nobody really got it, like, on either side. Nobody was really aware of the other. And I've always believed that that's such a huge part of the problem that we're dealing with is that good people are just totally in different worlds. And it's, it's really not necessary and not healthy, and it's what allows some of the problems we see in this country to continue. In 10th grade, Sabah started playing basketball, which, as we mentioned, continued at Columbia University, but didn't start so smooth. I was absolutely terrible. <laughs> yeah, like when I started trying to learn the rules of basketball, people were already getting looked at by colleges. I was awful. I was really bad at catching the ball. I remember one time, like I finally did, like I think I might have gotten a steal or something for the first time. I really excited and ran the opposite direction that I was supposed to run with the ball. Like, <laughs> it was terrible. I became that kid who was just everywhere with the basketball, walking in the street, bouncing my ball, you know, playing every day, practicing every day. My junior year, I actually was on varsity, and my senior year, I got to start. So it was just such an amazing feeling to see that if I go and put in these hours of work, when I come back, I'm going to be better, and I'm going to be more successful. That lesson and, and feeling that power, feeling that my effort could translate into something tangible, I was just hooked on that. So, so like, what did basketball teach you that you still carry on in your life? It taught me that everything is practice. Because, like, when I say I was that kid who always had a basketball, I mean always. And to the point where it was annoying. But, you know, if I'm not dribbling, I'm bouncing it between my fingers. I'm just, like, holding the ball to feel it. And so it taught me that everything you do is practicing for the next time that you have to do it. And I try to approach my life like that. I try to bring full intensity to anything that I'm doing because I know that it's going to shape the way that I do it again. It's going to shape the other things that I do. So I think that it made me think really intentionally about the way that I do things and the level of effort that I bring to things. And I try to bring 100%. And I, and I also know... It also taught me about passion and it taught me about the difference between when you're driven and when you're not, when you're doing the right thing, when you're not, because I just felt like I had limitless energy to practice and try to get better. And I think when you have that feeling of unlimited energy for something, that's how you know you're doing something that you really love. And that's how I feel about film. And it's one of the first things for a long time that I felt like I have that energy for, where I can just stay up and just keep going at it, come back to it the next day, and it doesn't lose its excitement for me. Oh, I wanted to just know a little bit more about what your experience was 
going from public school to the private school and, and why, like, I just want to know a little bit more about your childhood. Yeah, so, okay. So my mom's a really awesome lady. She's a jazz singer and one of the most brilliant people that I know. And she was determined for my life to be different than what she'd grown up around. She was on her own at a really young age. Um, and saw really, a lot of really traumatic things in her household before that. So when I was four years old, she took me to Hawaii. And we moved to Maui. And we lived vegan. We lived off the land. Solar power, caught rainwater, the whole nine yards. It was absolutely beautiful. So my first sort of, the first sort of four or five years that I really remember of my life was this time. And, you know, our neighbors were Japanese and Hawaiian and white and black and just really a mixed group of people. And it was so far removed from, from what it's like in, on the mainland. And she knew that and she really wanted me to have a formative experience outside of sort of what we could afford on the mainland. So moved back to here when I was about nine years old because Hawaii is a wonderful, wonderful place, but extremely rural, extremely limited in terms of, you know, what you can do as a career, especially on Maui, because it's not like one of the main infrastructure islands. So moved back here when I was about nine years old, and that's when I started public school. I was homeschooled, actually, by her in Hawaii. Moved back here and started public school. And I was always lucky to have pretty good teachers, and I was always sort of ahead of my class, I think, because I had that head start where it was just my mom, one-on-one -on -one learning. Loved books. I was, like, always glued to a book. Until I started basketball, it was books. Like, just, I ate them. So, I always had really encouraging teachers, and it was okay, but it wasn't particularly challenging. So, continued fifth grade, went to sixth grade at another public school, and then seventh grade is when my high school, Marlboro, started. It was a culture shock, for sure. I went from a mostly black environment to a mostly white environment. The expectations and the rigor were a lot higher. And so the material I remember being okay with, but I, I had no sense of like organization. I remember I got my first bad grade, I got a D in history because we had this assignment. We were supposed to be all semester reading the book and outlining it. And I had no idea what an outline was. I just didn't know what an outline was at all. But there were just certain things, like mostly study habits, that I just never got. And I think about how many kids will like perfectly smart, really talented, and don't have like the kind of just, there's a certain type of knowledge, I don't even know how to name it, but you get it when you have parents who've gone to college and you get it when your school is set up to teach it to you. And if you don't get it, you don't know what you don't know. You're doing the best that you can, and you might even be excelling in your environment. But then you try to go to college, and you're totally out of your league. And it's not because you're not smart, but you don't know how to study. You don't know how long you need to be studying. You don't know that you need to be making flashcards and, and taking notes in this way. You don't know that you need to have a relationship with your professor so that when you're struggling, you have someone you can go to and talk to. Like These are things that I had to learn on my own and figure out really through through failing and feeling like I always had a lot of confidence in myself as a student. So whenever I would do badly, I was always really determined to, to figure out a solution. And, and I think that helped me a lot, but a lot of it I had to learn on my own and learn through trial and error. 
and a lot of folks just seemed like they already knew somehow, <laughs> so. When are you in your comfort zone and when are you out of your comfort zone? I think I'm most in my comfort zone when I am talking to people or listening to people, actually. I think that's what feels most naturally to me, natural to me. Um, I was pre-med before this, and it might seem like a far cry from this, but really for me it was about being a healer. And I was always trying to figure out what is the way that I can be a healer, and medicine seemed like the most obvious route. But there's such a healing power to letting someone tell their story and then giving it that sort of acknowledgement and just honoring it, even if you can't solve their problems, just honoring that what they're going through is, is valid and real and just sitting with them. And that's when I feel like I'm able to have the most positive impact on people. And that's when I feel most comfortable and most proud of myself and most engaged in what I'm doing. When I'm out of my comfort zone, <laughs> stuff like this, um, trying to figure out how to make money, you know, because I'm so much about the art and so much about peace and love, but I also know that my mom did a lot so that I could have a more comfortable life. And I have a lot of privileges that allow me to access a more comfortable life. So I almost feel like it's my job to put myself in a position where I can be stable and if I ever have kids, they can be more comfortable than I was and that I can help maybe some other people in different ways. I know that I can't do that if it's, you know, about the grind of just trying to pay rent. So that's what makes me uncomfortable because what I do is so emotional and so visceral and so separate from capitalism, but there's a certain point where you just gotta sell your art I've listened to some interviews with you and some writing that you've done about, and I've ever since you've said it, I've been thinking about it. Um, the idea that like, if there isn't discomfort in talking about talking about race or in some of these conversations, then something's wrong. Like, can you expand on that idea a little bit? Because it's had it's stuck with me since, and I've yeah. Um, I think that the idea that we should always be comfortable is a very privileged one, and if you've never been uncomfortable, and and comfort is you know your regular mode of operating, it's natural that you would feel that way. But for someone who's experienced, you know, beyond discomfort, you know, real struggle, discomfort is not the scariest thing in the world. So in order for us to solve these really complicated problems, everybody has to come to the table and realize that this is an uncomfortable topic. It should be an uncomfortable topic. Like it shouldn't be something that's fun and cool to talk about. And that's okay we'll get through it, you know, it's not going to kill you, it's not going to hurt you. So I think that it's an important lesson. I think it'll allow us to get really far if we just realize that being uncomfortable is not the worst thing in the world. And it's, in fact, I think one of the only ways for us to grow. And it's not just when talking about race, it's in anything. You've got to step out of your comfort zone to get anywhere, to expand yourself as a human. So the same goes for conversations about racism. The same goes for conversations about sexism about homophobia. These are all really uncomfortable topics and we have to go there. And once we go there and face them, a lot of times we find that the answer is actually that we just need to love each other and that we just need to, you know, realize that we haven't been treating each other as humans and, and do that. But it takes stepping into that discomfort zone 
in order to get to that place. And I'm, I'm assuming you want your film to be <clears throat> a catalyst to start these conversations, or not start them, but engage people in them in some ways. I want, I want my film to allow people to have a private moment of discomfort where maybe the stakes are a little lower because it's you in this story. But I want it to force people to go into themselves and, and look at what beliefs do they hold that are maybe unfounded and how they may be even part of a problem and not a solution. And when have they been quiet when they should have spoken up? I wanted to give people an opportunity to do that internal work without you know, so much of the risk of, of having it be in a public conversation. I think that's really the power of film is that you can engage people in a conversation without ever having to ask them to talk or ask them to put themselves out there. If I complete this film, and if I can go to St. Louis and show it to them and, and they respond that they feel honored and they feel like this is the truth, they feel like it represents them and that they're happy that this story was told, then I've done my job. I would love for it to go to schools, colleges. I would love a theatrical release. I would love to see it on Netflix. But for me, success is, is making the good film, making the right film. Do you feel any pressure to get it out quickly because of um, timeliness? Yeah, <clears throat> like there's always this, there's this really ba like big balanced doc filmmakers have to do where they're sitting on their story and they feel like they'll see a headline and think, oh my God, they've taken that one part of my story. You know, like, do you feel any pressure? Um, I think at first we really did because we knew that we were nobody in the film world, so it was incumbent on us to make it seem like we were as close to being finished as possible so that we could kind of say we're the documentary and not say, you know, we have some footage that might be a thing. But now that we've really built the trust of this community and that we've really, our story has started to take shape, I'm not so much afraid of being scooped. I'm not afraid of the issue becoming irrelevant do I want to be doing this for another 15 years? You know, <laughs> hopefully this is not like a lifespan, one of those documentaries, but I'm mostly determined to really tell the, tell the story right. I think people want answers and people want solutions. And I don't know that my film will be the end all be all in terms of solutions, but I do hope that it can bring a little bit more understanding and provide a little bit more common ground for folks to realize that it's just about people who want the best for their families, the best for their community, who see something wrong and want to do something about it. You know, it's really not as complex as it seems, but I think demystifying it is, is what's going to be really powerful about the film. I get the anger, I get the rage. It's really extremely frustrating and extremely heartbreaking to see time after time after time, young people, promising people, people on their way to college, people who could be the next mayor, the next politician, or the person to change things, and their just lives are just cut off. And their families get no, no resolution, no closure, no honor, no, no word from this country that your child's life was as important as anybody else's life. To watch that happen over and over right in front of you, 
that could drive anyone crazy. You know, it could it could drive people to do things that they would not normally do. And that's what this was. This was people couldn't take it anymore. When you're so close to it, it's different. You know, when you see it on the television, it's painful and it's sad. But when it's your own neighborhood with somebody that could have been your cousin or your brother or maybe was your cousin, it's hard to take and keep taking and keep taking. So I knew that there was a story here that was human. I knew that people needed to understand that people are mourning more than anything. You know, that more than more what was happening out there for all the time spent protesting, there was much more time spent holding vigil and people just being with each other, feeding each other, making sure that each other had water and treating each other's wounds and, and just being in community. I think that people were just so happy to be together. Space has been so privatized. We've been so socialized to be individuals and be on our own and our lives are our own little bubbles. I think that it was such a relief for people to just lock arms and say, I'm feeling this too. That's what I saw and that's why I wanted to go because I wanted to be with people who were really feeling it too. I just have one last question. Yeah. Do you have anything? Um, in terms of that and becoming a director of a documentary, there's like a persona, or not persona, but a figure you represent. Do you want to be like a role model or do you want to, what responsibility do you feel to younger girls like you or that were like you? And like, what advice would you give them? I think the only reason that I would want to become any kind of figure is so that young girls, particularly black girls, particularly dark-skinned girls and tall girls, because I think that we tend to be the least sort of, in this heteronormative way, the least embraced as women. We tend to be on the outside of things a lot. Um, so if girls like that or any girl really can see me and be like, I can do, you know what I'm saying? I can, I, I'm capable of this. That, just the idea of that, and it's happened, you know, before I've had people tell me that I've inspired them. And that's when I just feel so incredibly powerful and so incredibly grateful. And I don't feel like I can take credit f or take full credit because my mom is so amazing and I've so much respect her integrity and who she is and how she's shaped my life. And I also feel like, as <laughs> hippie as it's gonna sound, like the universe really does provide and, and put things into place where all I have to do is stay true to myself and continue to move forward and things just kind of happen in this incredible way. Um, and my job is just kind of to be accepting of that and, and to honor that blessing in the best way that I can. What I would say to young girls is just, if you're afraid, if you're uncomfortable, that's okay. Just don't let it stop you. Just know that it's it's not gonna go away. You're gonna be nervous. People are gonna doubt you. You're gonna doubt yourself. And that's fine. Just keep going forward.
Thank you to Sabah for giving us her time and great conversation. Her grace and power has stuck with us since. We wish her and her entire Who Streets team a wonderful premiere at Sundance. Congratulations, guys. Visit our website, shedoespodcast.com, to find out more about Sabah and Who Streets. Her film screened six times between January 19th and the 27th in Park City at Sundance, and will hopefully have its festival run and wider release over the course of the year. This show is produced by us, Sarah Ginsberg, Andy Lane Sheldon, and sound design is by Billy Wiraznik. The music you heard in this episode is from the newest album by Stag Hair, a music maker we featured last year. Visit our website to listen to her music maker episode and to get links to more of her music. We hope to bring you a few more episodes of She Does throughout 2017. Happy New Year, and thank you for listening to She Does. She does.